This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. This is the third in our short series on the stories of Edna O'Brien. This week, we're talking about Irish Revel. Peter Orner and I are so happy to welcome author Thomas O'Malley to the discussion this week. In Edna O'Brien's Irish Revel, Mary is a 17-year-old girl who's been invited to a party in town. She dons a black dress that belonged to no one in particular in her family, but came to her small farm home in Ireland all the way from America. It's a dress she considers special for a special occasion. She undoes her braids to reveal the crimped hair she may have deemed fancier than her normal straight locks or the braids themselves, the style to keep the hair out of her face while she tended to her baby twin siblings or the many chores on the farm. Her efforts to look special or fancy go unnoticed and she can't shake the image of the mountainy girl assigned to her by the other girls at the party. Mary's bicycle is only as reliable as its front flat tire, but off she goes to the party at the commercial hotel. She thinks she will see again John Rowland, a man for whom she's carried a torch for two years. But instead, she's put to work to prepare the festivities alongside a group of mean girls, for a boisterous, bedraggled cast of invited guests, all men, and no John Rowland among them. As we'll see, things go from bad to worse from there for poor Mary. In a final scene, Mary has left the hotel in the dark of night. She must be home by early morning to milk the cow. While she's hoped to see John Rowland again, she sits on a bank a half mile from home and says, If only I had a sweetheart something to hold on to. Had she given up on the illusion of her first love? In the essay, Virgie Walking Away, from the memoir in essays, Am I Alone Here?, Peter Orner writes about Virgie Rainey from Eudora Welty's story, The Wanderers. Even though the folks in her fictional town don't think much of her, there are many things to admire about her. She's a singular sort of character, a prodigy, a lonely. We learn about this character as another 17-year-old, like Mary in Irish Revel, but we also see her at an older age, perhaps still carrying the vestiges of illusion in the form of a funeral flower. Peter Orner writes, and now she is leaving again. The last time she left Morgana, she was 17. She swore she wouldn't come back, but she did. At age 40, Virgie finds herself back home. Writes Peter Orner, this time, she tells herself, this time she'll be gone from here for good. As long as I'm conscious and able to think, I, whoever I am, will love Virgie Rainey as she walks away in high heels through the tall bearded grass. Mary, in Irish Revel, sits on that bank a half mile from home and cracked some ice with her own high heels. She watched the crazy splintered pattern it made. The thin fractures and fissures were like lines on a map pointing in all directions, a promise to venture out again, hopeful, in search of whatever we think is missing from our own simple lives. But the lines lead the other way, too, back to her own house, like a little white box at the end of the world, waiting to receive her. Mary wonders if all parties are as bad as this one at the commercial hotel. We know that the answer is yes. Parties and unrequited first loves and a night we make out in our minds as the stuff of Cinderella fairy tales will always break our hearts, will never live up to our fantasies or illusions. Thank goodness you can walk the bike back home, or that frost on a dark night can magically make the dunged street clean and white. We see that with Mary, as with Virgie, even her failing fails. She's never fallen so low, 
she can't get up again. Endless the roads that bring us back home, writes Peter Orner. Endless the roads that carry us away again. Let's get carried away then with Edna O'Brien's Irish Revel. Peter Orner and I welcome a very special guest to the Lonely Voice on Book Public. We're joined by author Thomas O'Malley. Yvette and I are, are pleased to welcome to, to the Lonely Voice um, uh, Tommy O'Malley, who's a, a, a colleague of mine at, at Dartmouth College and a wonderful novelist and, uh, and is here um, to discuss uh, Edna O'Brien's Irish Revel, a story that he chose. Um, so he's going to help us uh, uh, discuss the story and also talk about why it's a particularly important story to him uh, in, in his literary life. Hello, everyone. Hello, Yvette. Hello, Peter. Why is this such an important story to you? You know, that's a difficult question because I would say that almost every Edna O'Brien story is important to me. Um, Rereading this one, it was trying to pick one story out of all of her stories um, that somehow gave a path or maybe it was a look backwards, a glance backwards at this wonderful career. Uh, And, you know, as this story begins, she had perhaps a couple of stories published before this, uh, especially over in the UK. And, and, but this one was the first one that probably brought her the biggest attention was the beginning of that climb of the literary figure that would become so prominent in Irish letters and as um, Ireland's, you know, most prominent uh, female author. So I wanted to go back, even though there's stories and novels and things that have influenced me throughout my whole life. um, I want to look back at this first story that was published under a different title that had a different ending. um, And that was first published in the New Yorker in 1962. Uh, And in looking back over it, I was also quite amazed. I, I, you know, I know the story quite well. Um, I give to students all the time, but I, you know, and knowing that I was going to be discussing with with the, the two of you, um, I looked at it again through new eyes, and it shocked me in many different ways. Um, the the violence in this story, uh, the debauchery, uh, the shock of the main characters um, coming to understand her disillusionment falling away, uh, her romantic idealization of love falling away, the possibility of something better or greater falling away. And when you read the story, you know, because I, I got then I got all excited all over again. And I was thinking, well, this is like this and O'Brien story. It's like that and O'Brien story. It's like this novel and that novel, but yet it's not, not at all. And it's, I think it's a really true beginning point of a literary career, you know, the beginning of an established literary career, especially with the first story being published in the New Yorker and to an American audience. So that was essentially. Uh, my my notion for picking this, even though it was very difficult. So when I say why this story is most important to me, um, I, I can name a dozen others. Uh, but so I had to. I decided picking a starting point might be the best place. Well, the twenty twenty one reading, I think. So the the new eyes that you come to the story with, but there's some. This it's a very sort of twenty twenty one sort of shock about the violence and the debauchery, as you said. So I think I can relate to that idea. Yeah, when, you know, in rereading it, um, and my students always have a certain, um, you know, they, because it begins, it begins in somewhat, you know, it's not typical by any means, but it's somewhat in a, an Irish ideal that is familiar. Uh, it begins in a rural setting with a young girl coming down from the hills towards, you know, her notion of urbanity, you know, uh, in the town, you know, where the life is going to be. And it's more than that. It's uh, a lot of dreams and hopes, what is about to come and who she thinks is there (laughs) that isn't. And it's her notion of herself as a country girl in relationship to living in the hills. And then the people that she meets in the town and their understanding perspective of country folk and what begins rather idyllically um, with this romanticized notion of, of love or what she thinks is love. And she's 15 when she first comes across this stranger, uh, this British painter, um, and has held on to that notion of this man. And then how quickly that, and I think artfully, that is turned upside down and inverted 
And it's also wonderfully reflected in in O'Brien's prose through the perspective and the gaze on the landscape. And that's, of course, very Joycean as well. Um, And that particular detail of that you might say is very Irish or very rural, of noticing the aspects of nature, whether it's the firs, whether it's the hawthorn or the fuchsia in, on the hills, or even the wonderfully, of course, Irish cow dung, um, you know, that are all there and they all become a reflective image of not only the events, but also her emotions throughout it. Well, once we get the, the initial exposition about things, about this invitation that has come the same day as the party, and we realize that she does have uh, some illusions about what will happen. You're right. There is this looking at the natural world when she looks back at at her house. It was the only house back there on the mountain, small, whitewashed, with a few trees around it, and a patch at the back, which they called a kitchen garden. There was a rhubarb bed. I really made note of this fact that she has all this illusion about what's to come and as soon as she leaves with this kind of wonky front tire on her bike she's still looking back at the house I found it very poignant and I also found it very interesting that there is this not just looking back at her house and obviously this place that's so familiar to her compared to where she's about to go but that she uh, imbues it with this idea of the natural landscape too. This is the opening of a few pages of the story where she's, you know, she's been a, a young girl's been invited to a party, right? Like, like Tommy says, like we're not in any kind of radically different type of story here. Um, and I, I kept thinking, actually, at what point is it? Does it become like an Ed O'Brien story? And there are <laughs> points where I felt like that. For for example. You know, God, I thought it was someone important when the girl answers the door at the hotel. Um, but 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 even earlier than that, I think the the place that you point to, Yvette, um, where uh, she stops the bike. She it's a long hill, so she's going to walk down the hill, and that's the occasion for her turning around and looking back at her house. There was a rhubarb bed and shrubs over which they emptied tea leaves and a stretch of grass where in the summer they had a chicken run moving it from one patch to the next every other day she looked away and she's done and and now she's free to think about this guy who stayed with them for a while which is actually a a weirdly sexy reminiscence of him later on in the story at this point the, the physicality even before she has has gotten into town where they're going to have this party where she is presumably an attendee to the party right and then i think there's this pretty shocking and what what you know ed o'brien she can do so many things i, I think i don't know tommy do we do, i mean is i feel like ed o'brien's taken for granted you know like like she can do literally everything and one of the things she does here is when the the young woman mary arrives at the hotel it it, it becomes obvious from the first second that she is not there as an attendee to the party she's there to work at the party which is completely blows everything out of the water she's in her best dress the dress from america, america. The dress that no one's allowed to wear <laughs> and, and so, so it's, it's like incredibly tense but what's so beautiful about what happens when she arrives and realizes that she's going to be the waitress at the party is that we kind of realize that before she does you know as readers and it's it's yeah. it's this weird feeling of just being ahead of a character and seeing her sort of literally like walking the plank yeah. And that and that's the story just totally, you know, and it had been a long time. Thank you so much, Tommy, for suggesting because it's been a long time since I had read this. And for me, it really was swamped by some of the others in her career. But man. No, you know, Peter, what you say about walking the plank, I, I think that is perfect, that there is a certain understanding. I think that's preceded that her understanding is also poised or suspended by all the images we have of John Rowland before we get there, that she's still caught up in this bubble of him. And as you also mentioned, the turning him away from the home that and everything that means, the mother has given her the best dress, said, don't lose your head, has blessed her with holy water. 
don't drink alcohol. And now once she turns away from that, she is free to romanticize about her understanding of this relationship with John Rowland, the older man. And she's still caught up in that, even as she comes into the town, she felt such happiness. She spoke to her bicycle. It seemed to her that her happiness somehow glowed from the pearliness of the cold sky, you know? And even as she comes into town, that's not offset by the, these drunken men, farmers, who are wandering around the darkness with sticks trying to find their lost cows. Can you read that line? It's so great. <laughs> the cattle line. <laughs> The townspeople had the windows protected with wooden half shutters and makeshift arrangements of planks and barrels. Some were out scrubbing their own piece of footpath with bucket and brush. There were cattle wandering around, mooing the way cattle do when they are in a strange street and drunken farmers with sticks were trying to identify their own cattle in dark corners. It's already, it's already setting up how ugly this is going to get. <laughs> and yet she can't see it, even though we're being told it's there. But for two years, she's yes. been thinking about John Rowland. <laughs> so she's, she, I mean, this has been baking for two years so far, and that's what's accompanying her to this place where she's maintaining the idea of the illusion, like as if she's going to meet up with him there. But poor Mary, you know, <laughs> two years of thinking this, that at some point, waiting for some word from no, from something that would come that didn't come besides that, horrible caricature of who she really is, the picture, you know, in the mail uh, as a token of his remembrance of their minor moment that was incredibly intimate. You know, you reread that, you're like, this is so intimate. It's, um, and you think of him as uh, an older man with, you know, or a fully mature man with a, a wife and children, and he's with a 15 year old. There's multiple levels here where at every moment you're cringing just a little bit, and then you're cringing a lot. <laughs> But hoping for the best. I mean, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, like this could work out. Of course, yeah. I'm torn between it. It just seems like this is going to be, and you know, she does. Well, we don't want to cut to the chase too much, but I mean, she survives this night, which she does, and she survives the night because of that wonderfully brief, but I, I thought quite telling moment of female community and shelter of sisterhood, that it's nowhere else evident, you know, they're just throwing her under the bus left and right, they're not doing any work. But in the one moment when it most matters, you know, they rally around her to protect her from the advances of O'Toole. Without that, I'm not so sure that the night ends quite uh, as well. He's rampaging out in the hallway, he's turning on the taps and the porters running everywhere uh, because he's so frustrated uh, that he's been turned away. O'Brien is, Again, like kind of, she specializes in everything, so there's no <laughs> way to. But you know, this idea, like she'll she'll go there, she'll she'll have she'll allow people to have a moment, but mm -hmm. she's not going to end there. That's not going to be the upshot. This story is not ultimately about communion. Mm -hmm. um, it's about being alone. You know, yeah. this this girl, you know, ends up, you know, having this moment, but then, you know, has to steal away in the morning through the through the porter on the on the ground um i just feel like like o'brien never lets you have you rest with that it's it's going to be rough it's going to be always rough you might survive but it's going to be rough i'm glad you mentioned the sisterhood because the very first thing we hear from those girls <laughs> <laughs> is God, I thought it was someone important. Another girl. <laughs> yeah, I'll go on out of here. Go away. Yeah, come in or stay out. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, and then they're making fun of, you know, there's that other notion of having heirs, you know, and I like being a, going above your station or trying to look the part, which you can't do, you know, and she's not even from the town. She's a country person, as one mentioned too. And they're making fun of her dress. You know, they're making fun of her hair. Um, it, it's not till later when they do try to comfort her. I think one of the girls says to her, oh, you have beautiful hair. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> but they're also making fun of her being a country folk when one of the men says, I'm sure you have a fine voice. Will you sing us a song? And they say, oh, sh sure, she can't even speak where she's from. They don't even know English. Um, this constant denigration uh, to her character. Uh, again, which is another part of the falling away of the illusion of the fantasy. Um, there's no comfort from John Rowland here or anyone. And, and it happens, like, to, to, to go backwards a little bit, and you mentioned Joyce and, and 
I think we'll talk a little bit about the end, you know, and how it not it, how it definitely harkens like very directly to, to the dead. And, you know, she's a young writer and she's under the spell of of Joyce as she freely admits uh, in interviews and the book she wrote about Joyce. And, you know, she reveres Joyce while I think pushing away a lot of aspects of his work. But to me, the party is so pathetic in this case. Like she, the, oh, the story opens where she's going to go to a party. The, the the proprietors of the of the of the hotel has invited her specifically to come to a party, and that's where that's where it's left. And then when she arrives, it isn't just that she's going to work at the party. This is a pathetic party. This is a going away party for the local customs and excise officer, who was Rogan, retiring. Right? Because his wife won some money in the sweep, which I assume is the lottery. Right. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand pounds. He's going to retire now. Uh, his wife lived thirty miles away on the far side of Limerick, and he lodged in the commercial hotel from Monday to Friday, going home for the weekends. He had a pretty good deal for a while there. This is the party. I mean, this is some party. And right? you know, and what that implies, he's talking about is what they're talking about with this this winning that they might go to Lords, this holy pilgrimage <laughs> site. And yet he's stopping at the commercial every week to have his time with uh, Mrs. Uh, Rogers. Right. You know, there's a time later on where she's on his lap and then he's in the bed in the morning. And it's one moment of just <laughs> these people, you know, it, it, and it gets worse, you know, uh, and it's done so subtly. I don't want to jump ahead. But well, can we, we just one thing, yeah. we, you compare it to the party in the dead, right? Which is, yeah. is there's pathetic moments. But it's a glorious, but I wanted to be at that party. I mean, you know, Freddie's drunk and all kinds of shit's going on there. But but this party, I would never have wanted to be an attendee at. Like, bring me, give me Gabriel Conroy and his stupid speech, right? God, yes. And the, and, the, and the music and the dancing. But this, at the minute, you know, this is not the dead, even if, though she is speaking to it. I think she's like, you want, you want that? I'll give you that. I'll give you the party at the, at the commercial hotel. That, that is, I think it's too, with the fitting Joycean Bells in the background, <laughs> and, you know, Gabriel Conroy, um, right. you know, listening up the stairwell to them playing The Last of yeah, Offer. Gorgeous, uh, right? You know, gorgeous. And this isn't at all. No. No. While she's expecting to move into her reverie about John Rowland, the first man she sees is this man who's saying, I can't chew, I have no teeth. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and is uh, has watery eyes and is blinking childishly up at uh, the girl. Um, you know, it is a, it's not a fun party. It's not going to be fun. She's realizing this. And then, as as you said, she finds out she's going to have to work at the party. It's not it's not a great party. And on top of it, she has to do some work. The work that she has to do also begins to just reduce her sense of self and personhood that it's not just the work of a menial labor that has just been called upon to do this because she's someone from the country and it's expected that they do this that they would even be grateful for it without pay uh, but more and more that's as i reread this and revisited the way that her herself uh you know her young womanhood womanhood she's 17 uh, is, as a person is reduced again and again and again and that comparison to Gabriel Conroy in The Dead, whereas he is a participant in the party, she is much like the the wait the wait staff in The Dead who are looking at the revelers. And her one moment where she can reflect back upon something more than that is imagining them having the party mm-hmm. and looking out the window, she's preparing for it um, and projecting what this party would be like Having eaten, they would dance and sing and tell ghost stories. In the morning, she would have to get up early and be home in time to milk. She moved towards a dark pane of window with a glass in her hand, looked out at the dirty streets, remembering how once she had danced with John on the upper road. And then it moves back into that brief moment of time, something to sustain her, to buoy her in that moment. And and then that falls away, that last remembrance of John Rowland. And then from there on, it's it's like a, a steam train toward the end. This is not a a young woman who is not used to hard work. 
She's used to working hard. And she's also used to sleeping in the same bed with the baby twins. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how she has to share the space at the hotel with the other girls and that description of the the girl's feet in between the faces of the of the other girl's lying on the bed the other way. You know, I, I feel like she maybe she doesn't expect too much except for this night. This this was going to be the Irish Rebel. This was going to be the big party. The dress, the you know, the hair that she braided and then she combs out the braid so it's her hair is kind of crimped and that's kind of fancy for her and at every turn things are just the illusion is shattered I mean it's beyond it it can't shatter it couldn't possibly shatter anymore it's dust um, at every single turn so when Doris says take these and hands Mary bunches of yellowed bills crammed on skewers. Do this, do that. They ordered her around like a maid. She dusted the piano, tops and sides, and the yellow and black keys. Then the surround and the wainscoting, the dust thick on everything, had settled into a hard film because of the damp in that room. A party. She'd have been as well off at home. At least it was clean dirt, attending to cabs and pigs and the like. Mm -hmm. So this is worse than the hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, back at home. I, to me, that's the about the only, one of the few times that she almost comes close to complaining. Because it's it's seamless. She doesn't, she's shocked, she cries when she's alone. There's a few moments, but, but she never stops working. And at the very moment that, you know, Mrs. Rogers says, you're here to work, she starts working. I mean, it's it's immediate. Right. You know, the shock doesn't stymie her instinct to just start working in the front room mary polished glasses tears ran down her cheeks so she did not put on the light she foresaw how the party would be they would all stand around and consume the goose which was now simmering in the turf range the men would be drunk the girls giggling having eaten they would dance and sing and tell ghost stories and in the morning that same the same part that you read before um but Next is she moved towards the dark pane of window with a glass in her hand and looked out at the dirty streets, remembering how once she had danced with John. So there's this whole section about John Roland Mm -hmm. that comes next. And I marked the, and it it goes on. And this is where we realize that she had spent quite a lot of sort of um, quality time with him. Yes. (laughs) The description is very, as you said, intimate and very close and very romantic and probably the first and only time she's been quite so intimate with another person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really um, powerful in rereading it to know that this is a thing. Um, at first, you can, I think, dismiss it as a, uh, a fanciful notion of a young young girl. But then when you see how intimate the relationship was in this moment, and the intimacies that they shared and you know yes she's idealizing romanticizing john you know this man but it wasn't based on nothing there's a lot of intimacies when he has a sunburn and she's rubbing the milk into it Uh, he has a tick bite and she draws it out and then they're dancing on the road to in the lane to no music uh it's incredibly romantic uh it's incredibly intimate and in many ways, I feel this when I read it, reread it again, that I'm like, no, Mary's being cheated again. No, this is, you know, he, there was enough here that he should have pulled back a long time. She was led down this path, you know, this young girl. And this is another moment of someone in a different way, betraying her expectations and letting her down. Uh, even when the picture arrives, you know, when he says that, um, or she expects him to send a token after he leaves Ireland and he spends a, still a matter of time there uh, looking after the farm and helping the father oil the, the machinery that what comes instead of a token or something to help the family is a rough drawn black and white drawing of her very like her except that the girl in the drawing was uglier and in that you know that leaves us the question did he draw it in that reason to create distance between them did he do, draw it to, because that was his perspective of her which was unlike her own sense of self, or was his wife looking over her shoulder as he created it and sent it on? Um, 
there's a lot, a lot there in that, that, that really brief passage. I also wondered if he was just a terrible artist. And <laughs> that, would explain, that would explain why they use the picture as a dustpan. Literally, yes. they use it as a, when, you need, when you can't find the dustpan, you use a piece of cardboard. That's yes. what they do with that drawing. They use it as, as, a, as a way to pick stuff up. Yes. You mentioned the tick, the tick bite, Tommy. That, that I mean, if you're going to have a romantic scene, oh, man. you have somebody, she took a tick out of his neck and touched the spot where the tick had drawn one pinprick of blood. It's remarkable. And then yeah. it's like a semicolon. It was then they danced. Now that's, that's O'Brien 62. There she, I mean, there she is right there. I think that that, that's like, you know, and I can imagine, I don't know if it was William Maxwell. I assume it was probably that took this story in, in at that time. And I'll bet when he got to that line, he's like, Oh man, this is there. There it is. This is this is the this is this person's great. That's oh great, God. you know, to put the tick and the dancing in the same sentence with a oh man. The tactile sense of it is just amazing, which you know follows earlier from his time there. And that day, his bare back peeled in the sun. She put milk on it. It was his last day with them, and you know she's tending to him. She's caretaking to him. She's washing his shirts. She's bringing him up water for him to bathe. It's, you know, and I'm like, what is he doing? Uh, <laughs> drawing horrible pictures of her. Um, but uh, but I, Yvette, I think that's a wonderful point. I never even considered or thought of that. He might be a terrible artist because we never get to see his art. I wondered about that because it would seem to me like if all other illusions are shattered here and she just, you know, she, she's looking at him with these other eyes um mm -hmm. before all this disillusionment um so yeah so i wondered could she not even perceive that maybe he wasn't so talented and um right. yeah well, you know that the thing about the tick to me is also like she has no self-consciousness in front of him that's also very telling i mean they have spent some time together a very close time together it just it mm -hmm. feels like she's in this sort of partner role with him uh it's yes. yeah it's very unusual no wonder she's sunk you know thinking about him and it, I mean, but in the very next paragraph after that that the pick and the larks and the dancing he he says he confessed that he could not love her because this is all in indirect you know in, in not in actual dialogue it's it's in pro you know it's an indirect dialogue technically he confessed that he could not love her because he already loved his wife and children and anyhow he says and this is actually in quotes. They're too young and too innocent. And, you know, and the guy's a complete, you know. And so if this is what she looks to as being the positive thing, that she's that she and she has this notion, which apparently comes out of nowhere without any proof, that the reason she's going to the hotel is actually to see this guy. He's long gone. He's yeah. nowhere near this hotel. So it, it's a, you know, she's it's a fantasy. The whole thing is. You know, and there's these wonderful poignant moments, too, that, you know, here's the moment where the mother says, a fat lot of good that is. Right. That wouldn't take you far. Um, and Mary is, she wants to hold on to it regardless, even though it's been used to clean up the dirt in the house. And she's ashamed of it. Um, she's ashamed of the fact that she wants to keep it. We're kind of at the heart of the story, right? We're at this party. The party is going exactly how... Uh, Mary predicted it would, right? Everyone's starting to drink. They're eating the goose. They're they actually tell a ghost story that is the best ghost story ever. I think we should definitely pause on that in a moment. <laughs> but um, I, I guess, I, I, Tommy, because you're with us, I, I, I do have a, you know, and this might be a stupid question, but I'm just wondering, like, as somebody who is intimately, you know, knowledgeable about where this story's coming from. I'm just wondering if you could kind of just speak to that, and just the Irishness of it, or, or is that just utterly ridiculous? No, I, I don't think so at all. I think it begins really early where she changes, when she parks her bike against the outside post and wants to get in in a rushed into the building and she decides to go through the, the pub entrance and then backs away from it. 
because she knows what will be said about that and has to go through the main entrance. You know, th there's little nuances like that throughout. And I think the caretaking, I think from a, a, a country person's perspective of that sense of identity you have as, as the other coming into a town or any urban area, uh, even if it's a small town, you know, not a major metropolis like Dublin or, you know, a Cork. Um, and so this, I think you feel and you think about the time period of 1962, um, you know, an Ireland so far beyond the rest of the, you know, Europe at that time and, and catching up slowly, but how rural rural was and that heightened exp expectancy of, of going into town, you know, going to town of a uh, Friday or Thursday, that was a big event. And this is a major event for her. Uh, so you see that and also in all the different ways in which there's misunderstandings uh, in communication, uh, even in language. Um, um, and, and again, you know, the, the way that she uh, reacts to it, for instance, very quickly, right before we get into the dancing and it really begins to go downhill because it's so inebriated, but where Hickey says, I could eat a young child. You know, and you know the voraciousness of that, but also just uh, the immediacy of it is so shocking to her, uh, and the the lack of manners. And you know, the, there is always, I think, the sense of rural versus uh, the town folk. Um, and again, that that distance that's changed here. Um, so all these things, even you know, she comes in hardworking. You know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, Yvette said that she, this woman is not frightened of work. Uh, and it may be, you know, to some degree, this playing on stereotypes, the hardworking, you know, uh, mountainy uh, hill people here uh, who are somewhat layabouts and even the workers there, you know, the other female workers are in the bathtub or in the bathroom drinking the cider and getting inebriated and saying, oh, do you want a lozenge for your breath? <laughs> um, you know, there's all manner of wonderful things, even the way that Mary compares it to a, uh, oh, it, it's not actually Mary that compares it to, it should be to Doris <laughs> Sobirn, Burn and you know an illicit uh, drinking establishment um there's a lot of nuance here it's it's wonderful and i don't want to continue on too far and get away off track but you mentioned early on peter about the way that you know and o'brien is underappreciated and over the years in fact denigrated um you know especially overseas and by critics who call it ah that old irish thing she keeps going back to back to again and again but in this specific story, in this time period, it's so acute and so precise uh, to these perspectives and uh, to these, this culture that, um, I, you know, I don't, there's not a moment where I suspend my disbelief that this is someone writing from far outside the experience of it. You mentioned that the, just the, the other girls drinking, the other, the other girls who are townies who are also there to work the party, but they're not surprised about working the party. They, they knew <laughs> perfectly well what they were you know going to be told to do but there's this amazing and just a small thing but she says have a cashew take the smell off your breath <laughs> i don't know what cashew is what is that it's it's a sweet smelling lozenge uh, for bad breath ah uh, you said that the lozenge great and so then there's this remarkable line doris said as she hawed on the bathroom <laughs> window and that is exactly what it means Haw, every, you know, anyone listening, haw on the mirror. That's you. That's what you do. Like that, you know, I, I, I we always, that and I kid, because sometimes we, we, you know, we we're too enthusiastic about the writers we talk about. But, you know, like that is, that is just pure genius, pure genius to pay that kind of attention. And, you know, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who's written the word hog in that way. Maybe they have, but I, I'd say Edna O'Brien's the first. And you know what? I, I would say that, you know, I mean, here she is, a young writer. What is she in this moment? 32, perhaps? Uh, at the publication of it, uh, not even the writing of it. And that, you know, when you hear that word, you know, immediately Joyce comes to mind, you know, and his love play with wordplay. And, um, you know, and I have a sense that not only is Joyce often musically flooding her as she's writing and she has her own music as well that's why you know even though she is completely has always been public about her love of his um the way he plays with language but she's got her own music and i think this is also another example and, and, you know and arguably more st steeped in a different way right yeah I mean, you know she I, I, her exile and she certainly was exiled 
but her exile was different, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not by choice in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you know, when O'Brien was, her books were burned, uh, you know, she was uh, demonized in ways that, that he never, ever experienced. There, there's a, a line in the beginning, there's a foreword of my edition with Philip Roth, uh, written by Philip Roth, and he quotes a, a, an essay about Joyce, um, and he says, this is Frank Tui talking, Roth is quoting him, he says, the world of Nora Barnacle had to wait for the fiction of Edna O'Brien. Mm. It's a, it's a not, you know, it's a pithy line, but it, it does seem there is a bit of a truth to that. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is. So after Hick, he says that he could eat a young child. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bring us back. I want to, no, I, I'm struck by this idea that, um, She's surprised that people in towns were so coarse and outspoken. Where here she has to carry around the um, the assumption that the mountainy people are the uncouth, uncivilized ones, and she's she comes face to face with the way that these people are behaving. And then she wished that she were at home. She knew what they were doing at home. The boys at their lessons. Her mother baking a cake of wholemeal bread because there was never enough time during the day to bake, her father rolling cigarettes and talking to himself. And then, of course, she thinks about John right after, the, <laughs> right yeah. in the same, uh, in the same uh, breath. Um, but she wants to go home, and then, um, of course, the party is now in full swing where she's having to do all of this work, and everybody's getting drunk and getting wilder by the second you know, it almost immediately it turns upon the thought after her uh, reminiscing about what they were doing back at home and how she wants to return to it, that this is when everything really turns and takes a darker note. Um, it's almost as if to say, or in a Brian is like, I'm not letting you go home. <laughs> uh, not, not for a while yet. Right. Um, you know, there's, especially with the introduction of o- O'Toole, well, first with the death of the pig that they've killed on the road, and the noise that they're they're summarizing or telling the party about, um, and it's you know it's it's death which wasn't immediate. Uh, in, in in many ways, you feel okay. Is this in some ways setting up uh, poor Mary as she's going to be in this sacrificial role role moving forward? And then it introduces O'Toole, and his description of her is so base and derogatory. Uh, it's almost shocking. It is shocking. She had funny eyes when you looked into them brown and deep like a bloody bog hole. I mean, yeah. And right after, exactly, Peter, right after she had long black hair that some people might think streelish, but not him. Uh, he liked long hair and simple-minded girls. Maybe later on he'd go, he, he'd get her to go into one of the rooms where they could do it. You know, he's, and then the bog hole description directly afterwards. Yeah. Um, he's completely reduced her nothing i had to look up streelish it's a good word it is means unkempt right slatternly but i think even when she goes i mean i think there's always this balance or not a balance but you know she she'll go into a very dark place and then a paragraph later one of the girls asks, is that your brother? Your brother the bishop? <laughs> right, to Mrs. Rogers, knowing full well it's the, her brother the bishop, but she just wanted to ask the question, you know, and, and then Mrs. Rogers, that's him, poor Charlie, because the bishop is on the wall. He's a, it's a portrait. I thought at first he was actually there, but he's, he's um, you know, he's, a, he's the portrait over the fireplace. It's just, you know, she is always willing to be, like, there's just always life, and she she's never all she isn't all one thing from paragraph to paragraph no she isn't and you know i was going to suggest and it's perhaps completely off base but the j that she's you know traced into the dust on the picture (laughs) earlier on is is no longer perhaps uh a a reference to to john uh the would-be lover but to someone else uh and a homage to him in this this story interesting but it's still such a great part of the story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> they're all looking at the picture, and they're all looking at it. Yes, and there's that almost hidden thing. It's only a, it's a hidden thing, a secret thing for her, something precious to her heart. Yes, if that Jay is Joyce. 
He actually makes that somewhat cheesy things. I was like, really? You're right. All right, I'm reduced to my. I think it's less cheesy if if it was a little her or Ed O'Brien having fun by putting the J in. I, I love that. <laughs> I have a question for you. you. You mentioned the 2021 reading, and this has come up. It came up in the Love Object, right? Mm-hmm. It keeps come up in other, you know, other stories we've talked about. Can you talk? A little bit about that. Well, I think the main thing for me, I mean, it's really all of the things we've talked about with uh, the 15-year-old Mary and John Rowland, but then also the 17-year-old Mary going to this party with all of these adults who are drinking and the expectation that she's going to work, but then also the reality that she is not safe. Right. And I don't think that anybody there except as as you said Tommy uh, except for the other girls will come to her rescue certainly not any of the of the other men uh apparently so that i think that's it for me is it's how unsafe she is in this space it not in the city not in the urban space but in this place where she's been invited to enter and Mrs. Rogers says, God bless us, Mary. Didn't you give Mr. O'Toole anything to eat yet? And she thumps her back to hurry her up. She's like a Cinderella. It's uh, <laughs> um, it's just so terrible. It's such a nightmare. To answer your question, Peter, it's it's just that, that she was she's brought out of the safety of her of her home um to be in a really unsafe place where anything can happen and obviously a lot of strange things really do a lot of questionable things really do happen they really do and you know it's hard to imagine that mrs rogers doesn't know what is in store for her by putting her in this unsafe situation uh in space you know at the end of the night she's trying to get the girls away from everyone put them together and send them off to bed but in the interim you know, she is very, she's culpable for the events that occur, and she is witness to much of it, um, which is also very chilling. You know, from the moment that we begin this narrative with Mary's punctured, um, rotted tire, um, you know, it speaks (laughs) so much uh, to what's coming and what may come, because that is even what precedes her daydreaming about uh, John. Uh, Roland, and as we get further and further into it, and we're getting there right now, um, <laughs> from the first moment that Hickey, I believe, he touches her hand, her finger, and she doesn't smile at him after he says, I could eat a young child, um, he squeezes her finger. And we know that this is, you know, as Peter said, there's a wonderful balance to this, which was balanced out by the dust and the J on the, the flaccid <laughs> cleric's face. Um, <laughs> portrait, which was also a wonderful description. Uh, We know that, um, again, a flat tire, a touch here, inebriation, a lack of supervision or care for her, her safety is Mm -hmm. is going to lead to, you know, these events getting darker. And and they do. Um, You know, as I I read this again, you know, there's, we're going to talk about it now, but O'Toole's lewdness and his acts that rise and escalate in their graphic nature, but also in their threat of violence. Um, it's really chilling. Yeah, it, this is the point where it just spirals. It just absolutely, it feels like, okay, they've somebody's lost control of the situation. And then also there's the, the scene with um, uh, Long John Salmon and, um, oh, this line, uh, come on, knees up, Mother Brown, O'Toole said to Mary as he jumped around the room. I mean, it's just, he's kicking the legs of the chairs. It's very violent. It's re- it's really just reached a point of uh, of no return, it seems, until Mrs. Rogers can just um, nudge everybody toward their respective bedrooms, finally. Right. It, you know, th- there's almost a sense of... Um... <laughs> well, we listened to those bells earlier outside of uh, tolling, outside of Peter's uh, space. And uh, there's almost a sense of with that echo and return to come into the drawing room, Doris, because O'Toole doesn't, can't remember or is too drunk to remember her real name or care, and which was the original title of the short story, uh, that we hear it repeated again and again four times. 
on each point, there's a further escalation of the violence and the, um, the predatory nature of O'Toole and what he wants to do. And at each moment, you are waiting, hoping, you're tense with the, you know, the belief that someone in the room will step in and, and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but... They, they, not only don't they, there's something about the, you know, whether we call it balance or whatever it is, where these interjections of, of pretty hilarious material, but that only makes it worse. Like, yes. I love the story that <laughs> Long John Salmon tells about his brother. It's yeah. priceless. <laughs> Holy Christ, not this again. <laughs> <laughs> right. They, they don't want to tell the story again. But this is while this other stuff is going on in the room. So it's like, you know, they're, they're, it's only, almost like she's using tropes to like, you know, to kind of almost like, you know, really, really, you know, dig into this scene because I'm I'm there like these they're chasing these girls around these young young girls meanwhile they're they're telling stories and having a good time even the good characters and Long John Salmon you know on the scale of good and bad be up there with you know, utterly oblivious but Different, yeah. chasing the girls around he's only thinking about going home and swimming in the river right <laughs> but even he does nothing he does nothing nothing, nothing. You know, it's 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 pathetic and funny and dangerous all at once. He just wants his mountainy lake and his ablutions, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> I kept thinking that's how Mary's going to be <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take me home. Yeah. But Take me um, home. Mrs. Rogers really only intercedes when uh, they're going to tell the dirty joke. Yes. So n- nothing else really seems to to move her to intervene, except when they start with the the joke. Fire ahead, Hickey told him. Well, <laughs> there was these three lads, and then she says, "Now, no smut." And no smut, as if smut has not been <laughs> part of the story from the beginning. <laughs> that that's it. Oh so. my God! <laughs> no, and that's that's the thing, you know. Right, Yvette, in that line is, you know, think of the girls. And directly afterwards, um, I mean, that the description of the pastor that follows, that even the men in the room have to call him out and say, for Christ's sake, man, you know, girls, O'Toole sneered as he picked up the bottle of cream, which they'd forgotten to use with the jelly and poured it into the carcass of the ravaged goose. Christ's sake, man, he said, taking the bottle of cream out of O'Toole's hand. And then later on, he still added again with saying, sugar you, O'Toole said, pouring stout now into the carcass of the goose. Before this, when each time there was this frightening pause, um, you know, Peter, you mentioned that despite all these events happening and the balance of O'Brien and the wonderful ghost story that we have uh, between these two moments of um, O'Toole's persistent uh, coercive hunting of Mary, that in many ways those pauses of that balance is a lot like letting a tether out or a line you know, until it draws taut and then you pull back and then O'Brien lets us have space again and we can breathe. And then she gives it to us again, you know, that it's four times O'Toole says, come into the drawing room, Doris. And and to the final one where he's raging and he's telling her, come into the drawing room, I tell you. He's demanding that she come to the other room with him. But there's that one moment where he says it for the second time after he's put the alcohol, the gin in her orange juice, even though she's told him not to, again, frightening then, frightening now. And she begins to feel slightly different, and the feeling frightened her. Come into the drawing room, Doris, he said, after he's done this, after he's put gin in her orange juice. He said, dancing her right out of the room into the cold passage where he kissed her clumsily. There's a shift here where suddenly they're gone. They're gone for a whole passage while the party, we go back to the other point of view, and the rest of them are still inside the party, and we're, we don't know what's happening out there in the hallway even though he's just begun to kiss her and we can almost sense the passage of time ticking off minutes where she's out there with this man that she does not want to be with while they're ignoring it out in the hallway and then finally it comes back in there is no joy in life crystal sobbed and this is again the art of an o'brien where she does this in one sentence as the gramophone made crackling noises and mary ran in from the landing away from o'toole I mean business, O'Toole said, and winked. And 
to me, what is frightening is the absence of not showing us what is happening there. You know, mm -hmm. something has happened out there on that landing that we're not privy to. Good. I mean, that, that, what Tommy just talked about, I mean, that, you know, when the, the main character steps off stage and, and who takes over largely is more peripheral characters like Crystal O'Meara, who's most wonderful. I mean, you know, talk about like minor characters and how they, they rise. Like this is the local hairdresser who, you know, when she drinks, she either or cries or talks in a foreign accent and then says, why am I talking in a foreign? It's like absurd. And it's, you know, it's funny. And you're so you while you are one part of your brain is worried about where did Mary go? You're also still at the party. And I just, you know, I mean, not to get all geekily crafty and stuff, which we try not to do, but I mean, that, to, to, to have that sort of doubleness, like to, to, you know, to not kind of milk the tension, you know, and, and I guess you risk there is we kind of fall in love with Crystal Amira and forget about Mary, right? I mean, we don't really, but that, like, she's so good that even when, even when she's describing what's going on at the party while Mary's out, it's still kind of, you know, riveting and wonderful, even though it's, you know, the whole thing is so pathetic. I, I'm torn about how to take it all. Going back to the art and what you're saying there about how O'Brien manages that, you know, and as a sentence that, that I mentioned, where there's two actions taking place at one time and one is speaking to very different human emotions and events at the same time with crystal sobbing. There's no joy in life. You'll get the sound of the gramophone crackling and then Mary bursting in from the landing away from O'Toole. You know, these events are all taking place in one sentence and yet they're containing all of the story and all of the world and life of what's happening. Even when Mrs. Rogers gets everyone off to bed, come on everyone, Blanket Street, which I love that line. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Rogers said, as she put a guard in front of the dying fire and took the money from behind the owl. Every sentence is doing so much. You know, she's getting one off to bed, getting their blankets. The dialogue is telling you what is actually going to be doing. People are moving about and building about and she's putting the fire guard in front of the fire as the embers die down and she's making sure she takes that money from behind the picture of her, you know, of her. Which we already know has one pound less because, because, uh, 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 Hickey stole a, a, a pound from behind the owl because he saw her put the money. The t it's basically the tip, and and he's taking money back. I mean, just, you know, so much. And you know, her eyes are all over the place. But but it, it so it, it makes you kind of you could see. I can imagine in '62 when people read this story, and that's kind of why I asked that question about the 2021 reading. I, I I'm not. I don't ask that as if it's sort of somehow diminish that reading it, it i think we might be reading more able to see more now than a lot of readers may have seen when they first read this story i think largely maybe as comedy at the time i'm guessing but i, I imagine that 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 the funny bits might have risen w w might have echoed in a different way i guess mm -hmm. at that it would be an interesting take to know because there are those funny moments that you know lift this in a different direction and if you focus on that then you you fail to see the things around it but o'toole's violence still i think would be frightening for just about anyone you yeah. know later on when he's rampaging down and banging the the walls with his fists and cursing and swearing which also for ireland then or now uh you know would be i think a sign of anyone reading it you know the average irish reader would be quite shocked by that um but Again, you said earlier, Mrs. Miss Mrs. Rogers absolutely would have been not only aware of that, she would have heard it. Yeah. But she's too busy in bed with uh, Brogan. Brogan. <laughs> it seems it seems fitting that they're all washed out by Porter at the end. <laughs> uh, you, you know, that at the end and this, you know, when I read it, it's it's not a hope there. I, I really don't think there is in, a lot in this, but um, just a return to normalcy, perhaps. But as she steps outside, when Mary finally leaves, and again, she is active in her own leaving and getting out of the situation from the girls, there's that wonderful perspective that she has of the snow that has fallen on the street and how she sees it. It's kind of the beginning of that, um, that lifting, that joy seeing image of the landscape and of things being 
quite beautiful in all this darkness, even though it's also shaped by that. She wheeled her bicycle down the alley into the street. The front tire was dead flat. She pumped for half an hour, but it remained flat. Okay, it's just, that's a realism of the moment, the stark details. Then we, we lift up. <laughs> the frost lay like a spell upon the street, upon the sleeping windows and the slate roofs of the narrow houses. It had magically made the dung street white and clean. I love the verb of dung uh, there. Mm -hmm. uh, she did not feel tired, but relieved to be out and stunned by lack of sleep. She inhaled the beauty of the morning. She walked briskly, sometimes looking back to see the track which a bicycle and her feet made on the white road. And that's the beginning of her journey away from this horrible place as when they wake up and what they see, because the porter has wiped the, the white and the snow from the street, outside it washed away an area of frost and revealed the dung of yesterday's fair day. And just that we share that one brief moment with them where the ugliness remains, that's where you almost, I wish anyway, I'm like, all right, I'm going with Mary. I'm down the path with her. I, for some reason, one of the most beautiful lines to phrases in the whole story is, is that, that, that being, uh, uh, stunned by lack of sleep and how awake you are when you have that lack of sleep and stunned by the, you know, by lack of sleep and, and, and inhaling the beauty of the morning. I just, I found that so, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I you can't read it as hopeful entirely, but I, I get Mary's, I get the sense that this is going to be a memory, but it's not going to be a, a one that's going to destroy her this night. And Doris is back to, oh, a sneaky country one. Sneaked <laughs> off before we were up. So they're back to dissing Mary. Yeah, poor, she's done everything for them. My God. And, yeah. um, and, and right after that, you know, it, it's difficult not to know. Well, you can exactly not notice the art of uh, Edna O'Brien. But there's that wonderful movement in time that is so skillful where Hickey says, I suppose she's home by now. Yeah. And then suddenly, Mary was half a mile from home sitting on a bank. Yeah. And we've transitioned in place and movement in time. And, um, you know, you read that, and I'm like, oh, uh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the wonderful way she cracks her high heel into the ice. And the way, okay, as she cracks some ice with her high heel and watched the crazy splintered pattern it made. And when I saw that image, all I could think of that clear sheet of ice now being splintered and broken shattered apart and in many ways was the falling away of her disillusionment mm. and the romanticism that she'd had previously that was once and finally over and was beginning her journey home to what she is she's a country girl a hill girl and one that knows hard work and that these things are now going to be left in the past because they are not possibilities uh there's no future with with john uh, Roland, um, and that parties in the town are not what they're meant out to be. Tell me, you <laughs> talked about the, the different, uh, you know, the different title uh, of the story, and 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 we were talking earlier about the the different endings of the mm -hmm. story in, in in various published versions. I wonder if you could speak to that as we as we wind down. Well, briefly, it's it's one brief line that comes in the, in the final um, section. Um, and I could read both really briefly because it's the smallest amount uh, change, but it, the change does, it does make a tonal difference and it takes away from perhaps a Josian influence, even though it's still there in the story. We know that and we feel it. Um, it's right after she struck the ice with her heel. The poor birds could get no food as the ground was frozen hard. Frost was everywhere. It coated the bare branches and made them like etchings. It starched the grass and blurred the shape of a plow that stood in the field. Above all, it gave the world an appearance of sanctity. So that is in the version after 1968. The original version read, the poor birds could get no food as the ground was frozen hard. Frost was general all over Ireland. Frost like a weird blossom on the branches, on the riverbank in which Long John Salmon leaped his great hairy nakedness. On the plows left out all winter, frost on the stony fields, and on all the slime and ugliness of the world. And so hers is frost, general over all Ireland. Joyce's is snow, general over all of Ireland. And she continues that, that continual notion of on, in, through, that Joyce does at the end of the dead. 
Um, and to me, it you know, it's it's a one because I remember I read this, the the most recent from Love Objects, and you know when something sticks in your head and you're like, wait a minute, am I mad? I know that's not the lines I know, and I had to keep going back to earlier versions to find the original. And you know, to me, it just spoke to the craft of a writer. Uh, you know, to, you know, Brian is known as being an incredible revisionist and editor of her own work, and she's done it multiple times through previous. You know, subsequent editions of her novels, uh, especially the Country Girls, uh, it, her and the changes have changed the intent of of the tone, the emotion. And here, I think that uh, she was perhaps coming back to looking at it at a future point and of an established writer as Edna O'Brien, who's emerged beyond even with her love of Joyce, but beyond any shadow of Joyce. It's it's a pretty remarkable change, I think. It, yeah. It, it's a, you know, because Long John Solomon is in the in the nineteen sixty two version, but he's gone from sixty eight. It's a, you know, it's a it's a I just it's a fascinating choice that she decided, you know what I'm not going to end on 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 him no matter what he might represent in some kind of goodness about jumping in the river and the ab, ab, ablution that he mentions. He's gone from that. Instead, it's the, you know, it's the it's the uh, the plows take center stage, the and 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 the frost itself, and and frost not being general over Ireland because that maybe is a, is a bit too direct a an echoing of the dead. I think she's like breaking free a little bit here. Is how I how I see it. She's breaking free, and there's also um, there's that line in the original, and all the slime and ugliness of the world. And I think there's a future looking back at O'Brien that has a bit more hope and optimism, where she says, above it all, it gave the world an appearance of sanctity. You know that as her return home, Mary's return home, there's something quite beautiful to be taken in returning home to the safety and the knowledge of what you know um, after what she's just experienced, where in the original, there's still, it's the ugliness she's experienced has made everything ugly. I appreciate the the, 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 the newer version. Edna O'Brien is the author of Irish Revel. It appears in the collection The Love Object. Thomas O'Malley is the author of This Magnificent Desolation, a New York Times editor's choice and shortlisted for the 2013 Irish Novel of the Year Award. In the Province of Saints, voted one of the 10 best first novels by Booklist and chosen by the New York Public Library as one of the top 25 books of the year in their books to remember. And with Douglas Graham Purdy, The Noirs, Serpents in the Cold, and We Were Kings, hailed by Reed Farrell Coleman as a startling work of art, a beautifully rendered atmospheric tale of crime and punishment set in mid-20th century Boston. Thomas O'Malley is Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. The essay, Virgie Walking Away, is from the collection Am I Alone Here? by Peter Orner. He's the author of five other books, including Maggie Brown and others. He holds the professorship in English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.